Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Please check out the program next week. I'm going to be talking with neuroscientist Chris Thompson. And we get a little technical. I'm I'm curious to see what your feedback is. Uh, I think we did a good job of making it all pretty accessible. But uh, neuroscience can get super, super technical sometimes. And... Um, it's something that I struggle to learn and understand once in a while. And so I think it came off really well. And I think you guys are going to follow along just fine. But I'm always curious and love feedback. So just a reminder that you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website. Again, check out the new fancy layout by my good friend, Ramin Nazer. Uh, you can check out at RameenNazer.com. But anyway, you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website and you can uh, click on Ask a Scientist and I, uh, whatever feedback or suggestions or questions that you have for future guests, go right to me and I do try to respond to all of them. I think I do a pretty consistent job of responding to all of your emails. Um, hopefully not too many are slipping through the cracks. But uh, but yeah, that's always um, that's always an option, and it's always nice to hear from you guys and get your feedback. It helps me out a lot. So make sure and do that. Here we are, podcast dot com website. Check out Chris Thompson and next week's episode. Thanks. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I'm in Madison talking, uh, I'm at the University of Wisconsin in Madison talking with assistant. Professor of Psychology, Sean Green. Thanks for joining me, Sean. No problem. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, so uh, th- this is going to be an exciting one. I have a feeling that we're going to get more downloads on this than some of the um, other podcasts because we're going to be talking a bit about video games today, which I think my audience is going to enjoy, and also about learning, which um, we haven't really talked about too much on the show, but I'm excited um, to hear uh, a lot about i've been i took a class on learning recently and so i i have some stuff i want to talk to you about how did you get into um researching video were you a gamer um so i was a gamer um the way i started searching um video games is of happen chance as much as anything um i was at the university of rochester in the department of brain and cognitive sciences and i always had an interest in learning and neuroplasticity um 
and a new professor at the university, Daphne Bavlier, had just joined um, the faculty there and was looking for research assistance. And she actually studied at the time the effect of congenital deafness on vision, basically the idea that if you're born without a sense, how do the other senses adapt? How does the brain change um, in response to that? And so I started out working on a project looking at kind of the visual effects of congenital deafness. Um, and as part of that, I designed an experiment and programmed it and started piloting it on myself and my friends. And we performed kind of way different than the, the literature suggested we should. This was a really well-known task that we were using. It had no norms. Um, and we were scoring you know, well above what we should have been scoring. Um, and so... Um, after some thought between myself and, and Daphne, um, you know, we were considering what made my friends and myself different than the standard norms. And this was right about the time that T1 lines were becoming popular on, you know, on college campuses. And so my friends and I, you know, I was a, you know, someone doing a lot of programming. Um, and so, you know, we would write a function and then we would celebrate by playing Team Fortress Classic for like an hour. Um, so we were playing a lot of online shooter games. Um, and so, um, you know, we kind of took that and ran with it. Um, it wasn't something that people probably would have expected. And, you know, this was 2001, um, that playing these shooter games was something that could actually lead to benefits to vision or cognition. Um, but in the past decade, that's kind of what we've seen. Do you still like gaming even that now that you study it? Does it has it lost some? For me, as a comedian, I kind of sometimes I feel like I'm like, oh, I took ex- the th- the thing that I love more than anything else, and then I've ruined it by making it <laughs> my work and something yeah. that I have to um, grind out every day. There's certainly been times when that's been true. So in grad school, when I was spending probably more time watching, you know, not just you know um, people playing video games, but watching naive people play video games. You know, our subjects are people who don't typically play, say, shooter games. You know, we need to train them on these games and see how it affects their cognition. So these are people who are not particularly good at it, and so not only is it frustrating, it's a little <laughs> bit nauseating because they don't control their characters very well. Um, you know, when they they freak out, they push the mic or they push the mouse straight up so they look at the ceiling, and you know they run around like you know chickens with their heads cut off. Um, so it became frustrating for a while you know you'd hear the same scene in call of duty you know 15 times um or more than that if they died repeatedly um but, you know i'm still a, a part-time gamer i would say yeah, um, yeah you know not as much with the shooters as i used to be um but um you know i still i still play a fair share um I was, I kind of had to stop while I still do play some here and there, and I'll stop in. I just went to an arcade a few days ago, um, played some four-player Pac-Man, which if you've never tried, it's awesome. Um, But anyway, I had to cut video games out of my life around the age of 23, 22, 23, because I realized that if I kept on (laughs) playing video games, I was never going to do anything else ever with my life, and... um, I mean, I was playing like probably six or eight hours a day, maybe, and um, and so I I would call it an addiction um, for sure. And I've relapsed a couple times since. Have you have you studied video game addiction at all? Yeah, so it's one of the um, the areas that the lab is interested in. Um, they call it internet gaming disorder. Is the the technical clinical. <laughs> definition of it, although funnily enough, it doesn't necessarily have to be online to, to be that problem. Um, kind of the, one of the major things to note about that, though, is that the amount of gameplay isn't actually super predictive of whether or not someone is diagnosed as having internet gaming disorder. Really what's diagnostic is whether or not the playing leads to negative life events. So does the person stop eating? Do they stop bathing? Do they have problems with social interactions? Are they not doing homework? Um, So you'll get some kids who can play, you know, in college, I was probably playing four or five hours a night, but doing it as, you know, basically as a reward for, you know, doing my homework. Um, Other people will do it instead of doing their homework. And so it's that particular twist that would determine whether or not someone we kind of diagnosed as pathological, um, pathologically addicted to gaming or not. Hmm. I I had one time in particular where I was, I was after a show, I was driving home. Um, and I decided to stop in at a friend's house and, um, and I, I stopped in, we're going to have a drink or something like that. And they had just gotten guitar hero and that had just came out and was all the rage. And I started 
trying Guitar Hero. And then I just didn't go home. And my girlfriend was like texting and calling and wondering where I was. And I don't think I went home for like two days. I just played Guitar Hero for two days straight like a maniac and almost lost my uh, relationship. That would be considered somewhat pathological, right? Yep, that would probably fit the definition. Um, <laughs> occasionally I get I get very irate emails about video games sometimes. It's not clear why people blame me for the way people play video games, presumably because I study it. I'm to blame, but it's not as uncommon as you might think that people will actually kind of die while in binge game sessions. So, you know, I'll get emails, you know, um, especially in, say, you know, South Korea, they play a lot of StarCraft there, and they have, like, these big warehouse spaces where everyone will kind of get together and then play online. Um, And so... um, you know, I'll get an article saying, oh, this person, you know, died at their chair. Um, and then they'll call me a monster, um, which not clear what I had to do with it. But um, you will see that kind of binge behavior. Um, so it's one thing that we're really interested in the lab is kind of, um, you know, we know with drugs that you'll have that kind of um, pattern. Some drugs people take every day. Some drugs are kind of these binge type of drugs. And some users are chronic users and some are binge users. And it's not something that's really been... Um, scientifically studied with respect to games but it's something that we're working on now Uh, my expectation is it will have that same kind of flavor to it so what what kind of studies are you how how are you studying that and do you have any findings so far so we haven't you know so we haven't started looking at presume you know most of what we've done thus far is actually um kind of address a different question which is the difference between different types of games um it's kind of another big issue in the in the field um most of the work on internet gaming disorders treated video games like one big quantity like you know oh those kids are playing video games um but you know most people who play video games know that there is basically no single thing video games right um you know it could be a game on your phone it could be a console game you know it can be a a strategy game it could be a role-playing game so on and so forth and so kind of our interest has been what kind of content is actually predictive of developing this um and so certain types of game content seems to be more associated with um, the development of this do- disorder. So kind of role-playing games or real-time strategy games seem to be more associated with um, internet gaming disorder than something like a shooter game. Yeah. Um, you know, something like that. That's um, what, when I used to play, that was the stuff. It was like you kind of had to solve puzzles to get to this next level in the yeah. story and that sort of thing. That was what I was always hooked on yep and they'll um you know to use the the scientific jargon they'll have multiple reward schedules which is basically it's like you know if you think oh you know i just killed enough ogres to get this sword but now i only have to kill 10 more to get that helmet um so it's like (laughs) i might as well kill those 10 more because i can get that helmet and then you get the helmet and then you're only 20 away from getting you know the new shield and you know there's always something that's kind of real close to getting another reward and so good game designers will kind of build that in they kind of don't want you to to stop right stopping will cost them money right yeah i'm i'm currently so i i try not to ever download any dumb game because i remember when i got my first blackberry years ago i started playing um uh, some stupid game with a with a paddle and a a ball and it hits the bricks i forget the name of it it might have been called bricks Uh, well (laughs) it may have been called bricks and uh and then i ended up i just snapped right back into my pathological gaming and i was like i i was like setting records (laughs) and whatnot playing like eight hours a day and then i finally cut that out and then a while back i started well so now my thing is because i played sudoku for a little while and then i finally cut that out and then i don't know why i start in the first place i'm now playing this game ken ken that's like sudoku but with just slightly more complicated math and Mm -hmm. stuff involved um well sudoku isn't really math but anyway um and and uh now that's uh that's I'm sure part of the reason why I was a little late showing up today because I stayed up too late playing this dumbest game. I mean, I might as well be playing a fun video game if I'm going to be wasting hours doing something. But this is what I wanted to ask you. Um, When it comes to things like that, you know, everyone, um, like my parents and whatnot, are playing Sudoku, and and this is something that you give to, um, you know, we'd give them to like my grandparents or whatever because it's supposed to be mentally stimulating and then and then there's for a while I had a subscription I was doing this Lumosity 
um, stuff that was just um, kind of boring yet still addictive uh, games, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be learning exactly. And uh, but that's there's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of these companies out there now saying that you can sit and play these little brain teasers and and you'll increase your mental faculties by however much have you uh have you looked into any of that yeah so that's i mean a yeah a very active area of research the this idea of brain training or that you can improve your cognitive abilities um kind of one of the main things that we uh that we know is that um human learning tends to be very we say task specific um you know if you do a task over and over and over again you'll tend to get good at that task. Um, but it's often the case that you don't show any ability to do kind of things that even seem really similar. Um, you know, we say that there's no transfer of learning is how we'll describe that. Um, so, you know, it can be the case that someone can get very, 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 very good at crossword puzzles, um, but they're not necessarily going to be good at other word games. Um, and if you think about why that might be, um, you actually learn a lot of very task-specific things when you do a crossword puzzle or you learn to do Sudoku. So, you know, I've done a lot of crosswords. You know, anytime I see a water bird it's always urn i don't even know what an urn is but i know when if i see water bird and crossword you know i plug in urn um, there's yeah. no cognitive ability going on there you right. know, with sudoku you learn little strategies right yeah and so once you learn the little strategies you're not really kind of taxing your cognitive functions anymore and so that's kind of a major problem with many of these kind of little brain trainers is that um you know what you'll do is you'll start to learn very kind of task-specific strategies. Um, and so once that starts to be in case, you won't really see kind of general improvements in cognition. Um, I ran a study. I still need to write it up. It was an undergraduate who ran it. He was a real Tetris expert. Um, his fingers would just fly. I couldn't believe how quickly he could do it. And I got a friend um, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute who studies um, Tetris to just give me a version of Tetris where the pieces go up instead of down. Um, it's still Tetris. Um, everything is the same. It's just basically just flipped upside down. Um, and my student could not play that game. Um, he couldn't even figure out where the pieces went. It's not just that his motor responses were bad. He couldn't actually figure out where the pieces would go, meaning that you know you don't think of when you're playing Tetris that you're learning something specific to the pieces going down, and mm. it won't apply to the pieces going up, but that can end up being the case. And so it certainly won't necessarily be the case that you you know learn to play Tetris and suddenly you're globally good at mentally rotating objects. Um, right. Usually people are good at rotating Tetris pieces, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, you know, we call that the curse of specificity in my field. And that's kind of the major obstacle to this idea of general brain enhancement. Um, I, I don't know if this is a uh, the most accurate real life um, example of the, but I, I used to do a lot of factory work and that was very much that I, I felt task specific where you would be working on one machine the whole time and you'd learn a few tricks here and there. And um, they, I, I made furniture or whatever. And I always thought that, um, Oh, this will, this will be, Okay, because I'll I'll be able to change anytime I move. I'll be able to get a factory job somewhere else, and I'll be the best worker around there because I already have experience with all these other machines. And it never it was always just learning a new couple of tricks over and over again, and then it was just mind numbing. Yep, no, that's a perfect example. You know, you think that um, that these things would transfer over, and it's often the case that you know you've learned something super, super specific about that exact task you were doing. Um, it's you know it's a really smart system from the brain's you know perspective. It's a smart thing for the brain to learn. Um, you know, if what you want to do is be really, really good at Sudoku, what you want to learn is you know these little tricks. Um, to some extent, you know. Doing cognitive processing is difficult and error-prone, whereas applying these little rules is, you know, fast, you know, not cognitively demanding and usually pretty efficient. Um, and so you're basically always trying to offload, you know, cognitive processing in favor of, you know, using these little rules. But then that means that you're not generally improving your cognitive function. Right. So, so the idea is as you're learning, this is kind of mentally challenging as you're learning it and then as it becomes a habit it the the brain just it's kind of an, an efficient way of working these habits become more of almost a non-conscious or automatic automatic response yep. exactly so um 
So my my folks are getting up in years. You know, they're in their early 60s now, and my my mother wanted me to send her. She's like, oh, send me a game that will improve my memory. I feel like you can't remember. <laughs> um, so, you know, what I do is, you know, I send her actually a different game every couple of days and say, only play this for a couple of days, and then I'm going to give you something new. So um, that doesn't keep her from only playing text twist every day which is she's decided she likes text twist and is going to play that but that is you know more what we think of as you know um, something that would be kind of more capable of generally enhancing cognitive ability is constantly trying to be learning new things constantly be taxing the cognitive system Um, as soon as you're pretty good at something um, it's probably time to switch Um, it's just people don't like to do things that they find difficult that's kind of the the ugly crux of it um, is the things that they find not that enjoyable are the things that are probably best for enhancing cognition well they kind of say this with like physical exercise and working out that um you know not that i know a great deal about working out but but it'd be like well i like doing push-ups enough and so you do push-ups and then you get better and better at push-ups and then after a while uh, it helps to have a more balanced you're going to show a lot more improvement if you start working out your leg whatever little incremental difference you might make doing a few more push-ups when you already are good at them isn't going to make the same dis- difference as working some other parts of the body and oftentimes the the those are the exercises that people hate because it's challenging to them and it's not that automatic response. And actually another good part of that analogy is that um, often what's most useful for real life behavior is to do these exercises um, in a little bit more context. Um, So if all you do is bicep curls, um, you know, is that going to help you when you kind of, you need to use your bicep in a sport, but not exactly in the curl formation probably not going to be as you know useful as if you actually tried to train those muscles in the context that you're using them and so that's another kind of issue with many of the the brain training approaches is that they'll kind of try to isolate okay now we're going to train your memory now we're going to train attention now we're going to train you know whatever um yeah whereas in real life you use all those things simultaneously you know you need to be properly attending otherwise your memory won't you know your memories won't be formed well um you know your vision is going to interact with your hearing is going to interact with all of your cognitive processing and so if you train these things in isolation it's not clear and there's a kind of a huge old literature in psychology on part versus whole training and the extent to which um, part training actually will improve the whole Um, and generally speaking um you know it's actually really difficult for all these little parts to get integrated back into a whole um you actually need some whole training for it to be effective hmm. um it it's uh it's interesting that uh, so so if you were to say take one of these programs that do this brain training thing if you were going to sign up for say lumosity or whatever um so probably the most benefit that you would get is just to do like the first like beginner level of every single game that they have for like a couple days at a time, maybe just because it's kind of like exercising the brain, but you're not, I mean, still really, you're not getting any new skills or anything out of this, right? When you probably be better off just like reading a book. Um, So, well, I mean, the thing about reading a book is that often that's something that's very automatic. So most people don't find, you know, most of the reading that people do isn't actually very challenging, right? So it's like, you'd have to do, you know, reading that's challenging, and often people want to use reading as relaxation. Mm. Um, but you would want to do something that you, you know, find challenging that's actually mentally difficult. So, you know, new little puzzles or those kinds of things. You know, I, um, I was part of um, kind of a, a panel at the Stanford Center for Longevity. I know I'm going to get that that center's name wrong, um, but looking at the evidence for kind of brain training and these types of things, and in particular in the elderly, kind of the the best that we know of is just doing lots of new things. Um, And also, you know, the fact that physical health interacts with mental health. Um, So often, especially in today's age, you know, we want to get just, you know, let's be on the computer and improve our brains, but um, kind of physical health actually really will strongly interact with your mental health. If you're not actually physically healthy, um, you'll get kind of clear changes, um, negative changes in brain health. And thus the the Wii um, in in nursing homes, the Nintendo Wii, 
um, <laughs> where you get a little bit of exercise and you learn a new game as yeah, well. Can't hurt, um, I would say. You know, get people to at least stand up and move around is, is better than a, a sedentary activity. And I know there's you know, a whole host of, of people who are really interested in um, you know, making these more active games for that purpose to kind of help people who are sedentary be slightly less so. Um, so one of the things that interests me a lot that I've, I've talked about a couple times before on the podcast, just like kind of mentioned briefly, and I've, I've joked about it sometimes in my stand-up act, but uh, j- just the idea of how much your brain doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like using a lot of effort and doesn't like learning new things, or rather... Um, you knowing consciously like, oh, I should uh, like take a class on neuroscience or something like that. That would be really good for me. I'll, I'll be better with my podcast or whatever. And so I'll go and I'll start to do it. And then my brain is like either falling asleep or, oh, this is too demanding. Or hey, why don't you go and check Facebook or something instead? Because wouldn't that be a better, a, a more fun than um, taking this neuroscience class right now? But Compared to like the math involved in moving your legs or walking down the street or whatever is, uh, you know, reading a few words shouldn't be that big of a deal. You know, it's funny that it's so hard to get your brain to do things that are kind of good for you. Yeah, I mean, so the way I, you know, it's like the students in my lab, I'll always, you know, the first day of the lab kind of um, describe the brain as being indeed kind of deeply disinterested in learning anything. Um, you know, and to some extent as an adult, you know, that's pretty adaptive. Um, you know, for each 35 years old, it seems, you know, it's like most things that it knows it's pretty sure about. It doesn't really want to change. It doesn't want to change the way my vision works. It doesn't want to change the way my walking behavior is. You know, those are pretty set. Um, and it's pretty sure that those are right. Um, and so then the and if I am working in a factory <laughs> and I did get really good at this job, uh, you know, to go and switch because if you're getting paid on like piece rate or whatever, once... Once your brain can just shut off and make double the amount of money that any new guy could, then, you know, that's Yeah, so that's smart. So, I mean, basically, you know, it's one reason we think games end up being as powerful as they are in terms of pushing learning is that really the signal for the brain that something is worth learning is reinforcement, is reward, right? So if something, you know, predicts reward, then brains, all right, well, it's probably worth changing to maybe get some more of this reward. Um, you know, I like this. Um, if something is not rewarding at all, um, so if it's not internally rewarding, it's not externally rewarding, it's really difficult um, to get the brain to change. And actually, the neurotransmitters that um, kind of are involved in reward processing, you know, the types of um, neurotransmitters that are released when someone, say, takes a drug of abuse. Um, we know these same types of circuits are really important for promoting plasticity. So if they're not active, the brain really doesn't want to be very plastic. Um, it's really the activity of that reward system that kind of puts the brain in this state that's, you know, capable of learning. Um, and so, um, you know, we've known this in psychology for a really, really very long time, you know, hundred plus years that can't um, teach an old dog new tricks can't teach an old you know you can't teach someone something that they don't want to learn right um, to some extent um something that they don't ha- see any virtue to and so you know one thing that we're not clear on is why video games end up being as rewarding as they are um you know why it's the case that playing these games activates that system so so strongly um there was a study in the late 90s that tried to quantify the amount of um basically the the way the brain reacts to playing a video game as compared to how it reacts to taking a drug of abuse like uh, methylphenidate, Ritalin. Um, and so, um, you know, you get, in some cases, really similar types of brain changes from those two types of things. You know, the brain is treating this as something that is incredibly rewarding. Um, and so that, you know, can explain the addiction. It can also explain the really strong learning that we see. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's also funny, too, that you can't, I mean... As far as that reward learning goes, it, it is it's so hard to convince your your brain that like, no, just sit and read this some technical jargon in this paper and I'm telling you, five years from now, that's really you're you're going to be rewarded for having having done this. It's it's hard to um you know, delay that gratification and 
convince yourself that there will be a reward. You just have to trust me. It'll be worth putting the time in here. Yep, that's a really well-known phenomenon called temporal discounting. You know, it's the bird in the hand phenomena, right? It's, uh, you know, things that are in the future are literally worth mo less to the brain than things that are current. Um, you know, it's like when you actually evaluate the value that it's attaching to things. Um, if it's a year in the future, literally treats it as less valuable than something right now. Um, so that's, that's incredibly difficult to do. So um, you're talking about the, um, uh, the curse of specificity? Uh, curse, curse of, of specificity, specificity is that right. what you said yes. um so but you also study don't you study some um how uh, like first person shooters um end up sometimes having some general benefits yep. then uh, as compared to like playing sudoku or something yep. like that that's correct so yeah you know what we've seen in the lab is that playing some of these you know the kind of the maligned games of the world they're the first person shooters the third person shooters we generally call them action games um, you know, games that have fast motion, have lots of things to keep track of, you know, things popping in and out of view. Um, you know, we've seen that they lead to a lot of really positive changes for perception and cognition. You know, things like kind of improving your contrast sensitivity, which is basically just your ability to distinguish levels of gray. So, like, if you're driving on a really foggy day, can you tell the difference between, you know, the white of the fog and a slightly gray of a person walking by? Um, up through things like your ability to switch between tasks or do kind of dual tasks. Um, and so um, part of the reason we think this is the case is that um, these action games really kind of um, deny the ability to automatize. Um, you know, if you play these games, it's rare that you do exactly the same thing in exactly the same place oh. in exactly the same way. Um, to some extent, you're always kind of having to you know, react um, to things, especially, you know, now when you're playing with other people, um, you really can't automatize function. Um, you know, there's certain things that can be pretty automatic, you know, like, you know, the combo code yeah, or yeah, something, something like, like that. Or, you know, even something like, you know, I detect someone, I can move my mouse, you know, really with high, you know, fidelity. Um, but, you know, the ability to detect the person, well, you can't always tell where they're going to come from. Often they're deliberately attempting to confound that. Um, so they're basically always putting load on your attention, always putting load on your cognition. Um, and so that's kind of one of the main reasons that we think they push these more general changes is because they really don't allow anything else. Could we break down, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of, of uh, the changes, but could you um, break down some of the different, I, I know it might be a little hard to talk about some of like the visual tasks, for instance, that because this is audio, but maybe I can put some pictures on the, the website or something like that. But could you break down some of the, because um, if I remember right, looking through some of the work, there's like five or six different categories that sure. seem to... Yep, sure, I can um, do that a little bit. So, I mean, the we kind of, um, you know, we don't like to do hierarchies, but we always do anyway. So um, we kind of talk about changes from very low-level vision through high-level cognitive function. So low-level vision is indeed things like contrast sensitivity, just can you tell differences in levels of gray or acuity, you know, how fine a detail can you actually resolve? And so kind of we've seen changes at that really low level. Um, and one thing that we kind of, it's important to point out is that our tasks do not look like action video games. Um, these are the most sterile, boring-looking psych tasks that we use to assess these functions. So they're like black and white lines or little T's. Um, it's not that people who play these games come in and they're like, oh, this looks just like an action game. Right. It just looks like a black T on a gray screen. Um, so low-level visual changes. Um, then we kind of move up to what we'd call mid-level vision or attention. Um, so this is your ability to kind of pick out task-relevant information and kind of tamp down distraction. So if I tell you, I need you to find me this one target, you know, usually we just make it like a little white triangle amongst all these distracting white boxes. Um, you know, how good are you at finding this? Um, and particularly in wide peripheral vision. Um, and so people who play these games... Um, are kind of much better at that. Um, they're also better at tracking multiple moving items. So if I, you know, like the analogy we tend to use is imagine there's 16 identical siblings on the playground and you have to track three of them, um, you know, as they run around. Can you keep track of three? Can you keep track of five? Can you keep track of seven? Um, and so people who play these games are better at that. Um, and then things like um, higher level cognitive function, this would be, you know, like the ability to rapidly switch between tasks. Um, so one thing that we know is anytime you go from one task to another, you pay a little bit of a cost just as your brain readapts tasks. 
So you know, if you go from your web browser to your email, 200 milliseconds or so, basically all you're doing is that transition. Um, you're neither processing your browser or your email. You are literally doing the switch in between. Um, and so playing these games reduces the size of that switch, about cuts it in half um, from what we've seen. Um, also allows you to perform multiple tasks concurrently to the extent that a person can perform a task simultaneously or a little bit. Humans are a little bit like computer processors and that really what we seem to do largely is to really rapidly switch between multiple tasks rather than, than truly do tasks in parallel. But if I give you two tasks that you have to do at the same time, people who play the games will do both of them better than someone who doesn't play these. Hmm. Um, one thing that's important for us to note too is that our base studies always compare like the natural experiment, people who choose to play these games with people who don't. Um, the issue with that is that you never know whether or not um, it's the case that, well, people who are born with good skills could be attracted to these games, right? right. Um, so we actually then have to bring in the people who don't choose to play the games and actually train them on a shooter game and see how their vision changes or their attention changes or their task switching changes. Um, and in particular, whether it's different than people who are trained on a different non-action game. Usually we pick a game like The Sims that's just as fun, just as arousing, but doesn't have any action components. Hmm. Um, so, so what are like the real life implications of, uh, uh, like what are you testing when someone's say picking out a white triangle out of a bunch of white squares, what, um, what, what kind of skill is that showing for? For real life. Um, real life, yeah. So actually, the, the task with the white tri triangle and the squares um, is, is one called the useful field of view task. It was um, developed by Carleen Ball and colleagues specifically to predict driving accidents in the elderly. Um, so it turns out that the tasks that you do in the DMV, um, in Wisconsin, you do uh, eye chart and you do a little peripheral is the thing on or not kind of task. Um, those aren't particularly predictive of whether or not you get into an accident, at least for people with semi-normal vision. Um, Can you, have, you read? Yeah, it's like, you know, <laughs> no, typically people you. aren't running into things that they're looking right at. Right. Um, that typically isn't the problem. The problem with a lot of accidents um, is poor attention. You're not attending to the right thing, um, particularly peripheral attention. You're missing, you know, important targets in the periphery amongst clutter. Um, and so that task is actually really strongly linked with um, driving behavior, at least in the elderly. Um, some of the other kind of more practical um, directions that people have gone um, are kind of training for jobs that require certain types of skills. Um, so for instance, um, I know there's work on kind of using people who play these types of games as drone pilots. Um, you know, can they learn to fly drones more quickly than, than people who don't? And that seems to be the case. Um, you know, also there's a very big literature on gaming and laparoscopic surgery. Um, you know, you might think of, you know, endoscopic surgery as kind of like a video game. You're moving a joystick around someone's body and looking at a screen. Mm. Um, and it turns out that, you know, um, there's actually studies where gaming was a better predictor of surgical skill than things that you might think would be more applicable, like hours of surgery done or, you know, amount of training, those types of things. So kids, just tell your parents that you're training to be a surgeon. To be a surgeon. <laughs> Although I always say this, but when I had my, you know, shoulder surgery, I certainly didn't ask my surgeon if he was a gamer. I asked how many <laughs> surgeries he had done. Um, so it's always a question of how much uh, you, uh, you trust your own science. But, you know, that seems to be a pretty solid effect. Um, and then there's some surprising things that people have found. Um, there was a group in Italy that um, looked at whether or not playing these action games would actually um, improve reading in kids who are dyslexic. Um, you know, usually we think of dyslexia. So dyslexia is kind of a catch-all, um, age inappropriate ability to read. There's kind of lots of routes um, that, you know, would all be labeled as dyslexia. Um, and you wouldn't think of playing these action games, which frankly have no reading in them, um, would be beneficial for that. But if you think of what the front end of the reading system is, it's the visual system and the attentional system. Um, you know, when you're reading, you're usually kind of your eyes are on one letter and you're kind of focusing on a little band, maybe 10 letters to the right. Um, and you actually really have to kind of attend to that band and not let the other lines interfere. Um, and so, um, you know, this group in Italy showed that playing this, um, they used a game called uh, Raymond's Raving Rabbids. It's kind of a kid shooter game. You shoot plungers at rabbits, um, but it's the same kind of feel. Um, and um, their kids with dyslexia who played that game actually didn't just improve their visual skills, they actually improved their reading skills as well. 
Um, that's incredible. Uh, and 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 why? So so why is it that? I mean, why? Yeah, why is that happening? Why? What's the advantage? It, it does seem weird that like a shooter compared to reading. Well, I mean, I guess you know. Usually, when people think about what the you know the cause of dyslexia is, usually they'll um, think about issues in phonology or morphology, um, the sounds of language or the kind of the shape of letters and how they um, kind of go with semantic meaning. Um, but um, and it's not clear that the action gaming affects that at all. It's probably not the case that it affects right. the language system. Um, but it kind of affects the front end, right? You know. The, oh, just the actual so just focus the of focus the focus of it. So it's like you know the language system might still have impairments, but the data that's being provided to it is a little bit better. Um, so it'll overall be a little bit better. And with driving, is it that? Is it just? Uh, I guess if there's a video game, you're not like necessarily you're looking at the sides of the screen and stuff too, and waiting for like intruders to come in or jump in at any moment. So. So that's like helping train your periphery or something, or yep. I mean, that would be the the hypothesis. You know, the issue in younger um, individuals is that um, it's probably the case that you know these games don't have kind of single dimension effects. Right? They don't just affect your perception and cognition. You know, they'll probably have effects in your social skills and you know your motivation and these types of things. So it's entirely possible that, you know, any benefits to your peripheral vision get canceled out because, you know, you decided you can drive faster or something like that. But in terms of the pure visual ability to drive, that would be the the hypothesis is that um, you're better at detecting, say, you know, little moving targets, you know, and figuring out whether or not it's going to intercept with your car and then responding. You know, again, you've got kind of better input available to the motor system in that case. So, so obviously an eye chart is a silly, a kind of a rather silly, well, I guess you do need to read street signs and stuff. I guess that's somewhat important, but uh, do you see the future uh, uh, maybe putting people in like driving simulators or something like that, or, or having them do more involved tests? tests or tasks so i know the group that developed this useful field of view task has pushed really hard to have this task be used in the dmv um especially in the elderly um you know where their acuity so you know your base ability to read an eye chart um that doesn't actually fall off that rapidly and can usually be corrected with you know corrective lenses um but what will fall off is kind of this attentional ability um and you won't detect that at all with an eye chart. Um, so I know this group has really kind of pushed for that. Um, it just, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, oh, well, that requires someone to do a 20 minute test at the DMV. And, you know, it's not something that's ever happened. Um, but right. you might think in, you know, people who are 65, 70, it might be, you know, something that's worthwhile. Well, not only is it testing the periphery, but also an eye chart isn't, um, it, it's not testing any reflexes or any, or any timing or anything like that that would seem so incredibly crucial to driving. Yeah, that is certainly true. Um, as the baby boomers, um, you know, reach the age where they're probably going to start running into stuff um, because, you know, um, I don't think any state you ever have to retake your driving test as far as I know. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, that's just a cost benefit analysis, you know, of, that someone has done. Um, but, you know, you'll often see um, where the policies don't match the science. Um, so the example I always use in my class is um, lots of states will have hands-free cell phone laws. So you can use your cell phone, but it has to be hands-free, um, which suggests that, you know, some politician somewhere thought the problem was that you know, you're holding the phone in your hand. Yeah, yeah. And that is clearly not the problem. The problem is that you are talking on a phone that has kind of poor um, information. And so you have to attend to the phone. And, you know, we have a very limited attentional capacity. So any kind of attention that goes to the phone goes away from driving. Um, so um, it always made me laugh that it's like, oh, well, we've solved the problem with hands-free. It's like the hand was not the problem. The phone was the problem. Well, it's also it seems strange to me that like, but billboards and stuff are okay, and I'll see like billboards with like small print and lots of information on them, or pictures of attractive women, or and, and like phone numbers. They'll have phone numbers on the billboard. Wouldn't you be like punching the number into the phone? Well, so if you're punching the number into the phone, that's obviously a problem. But the billboards themselves, you know, you kind of get to control the attentional demands yourself. So if you're on a you know, a highway where there's no cars, you know, you know that you can look up and right. pay some attention. The problem with the, and actually, you know, one question I get in my class a lot is, you know, why does a passenger 
not have that same effect, right? So you can have a conversation with a passenger in the seat next to you. It's not nearly the same problem as being on a cell phone. Um, mm. And so there's two kind of major reasons why that's true. A, a passenger will actually modulate their conversation based on the driving conditions. So if you're in a really crowded, you know, traffic jam, the passenger ah. will actually change their conversational style because they know you're focusing, um, you know, so conversations are dynamic someone on the phone doesn't know that so they don't actually modulate their conversation that's so interesting i would that would have never occurred to me yeah, yeah that makes perfect sense you'll notice it you know once you start driving now that, right you know that that'll happen it's something that's very natural um the other is that a cell phone signal is compressed right so the data is literally less good than the voice next to you right um right. so it very literally requires more attention to figure out what's being said um, so those things conspire to, you know, make it be the case that a phone, you know, is really a problem when you're driving, whereas the passenger next to you is much less so. Um, so uh, quick back to video games. I was uh, uh, this may not be your research at all, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, are there are there like uh, video game like academic conferences and stuff like that specifically for yeah, gaming and uh, so yeah i mean so wisconsin has uh um a group called the games learning society um that i'm a, a faculty affiliate that's kind of they're generally interested in the use of games for learning so mm. many of the i think i'm the only faculty member that's in psychology most of the faculty are in instruction and curricula or educational psychology they're trying to make games to teach um you know academic um, material so my question was, I, this is something that comes up a lot, and I'd, I'd be foolish to not ask since uh, you may be the only person that I have on that studies video games ever. Um, but uh, what about violence in video games? Is this a predictor of violent behavior? Do you think it's influencing yeah, kids? So, so this is quite a um, – yeah, I, my class on the psychology of technology, we do about three days on this, including, you know, a really recent Supreme Court case um, from California um, where California was attempting to regulate the sale of games to minors, violent games to minors, saying that, it, you know, it have a, a detrimental effect on their development. Um, so I have a lot of good friends that, you know, I'm not a social psychologist, but I have lots of good friends that, that study this. And it's obviously something I've had to become well-versed in, given um, what I do study. Um, I'd say the evidence that games predict violence, so, um, is basically zero. Um, so Typically, you know, the way people think about um, aggression, um, you know, aggression is some kind of deliberate attempt to cause harm. Um, and it can go from very, very low level aggression to what we call violence, um, which would be kind of a deliberate attempt to inflict very, very serious harm on someone. Um, you know, there's, you know, not really any evidence that playing these games actually changes violence. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions about, say, school shootings, um, which is kind of a, a really great um, example of confirmation bias. They'll say, oh, these kids played Doom. Um, it must be the Doom that called, you know. That Every kid issue. plays Doom. Yeah. Every kid plays Doom, and except for, you know, lots of school shootings, the kids didn't play any games at all. Um, right. From what I know, the only really good predictor of um, violent school shootings are things like writing violent prose and violent poetry, which again is, you know, 95% of 16 year olds. So, um, you know, there's not great predictors of that. Um, so for playing the violent games, not much evidence that it leads to violent behavior. Um, what people in social psychology, um, argue a lot about is whether or not it'll change kind of low level aggression. So, you know, you get bumped into in the hallway, do you interpret that as deliberate or accidental? Um, you know, it's mm. not going to necessarily lead to any huge effects. Um, but, you know, it's like those are the types of things that could be cumulative. And so one thing that really makes kind of this field difficult to study is you can't do the types of experiments we do. Um, you know, I can actually do a very controlled experiment where I have, you know, an experimental group that plays an action game, a control group that plays something else. I can test them before, I can test them after, I can see the effects of the games themselves. You can't really do that with aggression. You can't say, my hypothesis is that this game will make you aggressive. Therefore, let's have you play it and see if it you know, changes your behavior. See if you this, end up in jail you know, or not. This problematic way. So, you know, um, you end up doing studies, you know, where you kind of look at people who play lots of these games. But people who play lots of these games differ from people who don't in many, many ways, um, especially young kids that play 
super violent games, often they're in households where the parents aren't monitoring their gameplay. Um, you know, they'll have differences in socioeconomic status. And so, you know, we can try our best to control for those types of things, but they always kind of linger in the background. So, you know, I would say the best meta-analysis in that field suggests that there's, you know, um, a real effect on things like aggressive thoughts or aggressive feelings. Um, you know, it's not a huge effect. Um, and um, it doesn't seem to, you know, get itself into violent behavior, I think would be a fair characterization of the, the literature. I mean, I will say that it, I, I started um, a while back, I, I took a couple months of boxing classes. And I will say that when I was in boxing, I would often find myself thinking about punching people more often when I'm in the Starbucks line and there's some someone being a jerk or whatever. <laughs> And, and that's how this, you know, the people in social psychology, they'll basically, you know, they'll explain these things as, um, do, you know, is uh, violence as a solution reinforced? And if it's reinforced, then it's kind of more likely to come to the front. Um, mm. Kind of the important thing to note is that, you know, we have layers of self, layers upon layers of self-control, right? right. Um, you might recognize that feeling, but, you know, you don't act on it. Um, and so the other place that social psychologists will, you know, it's like people that, you know, have poor impulse control might be more negatively affected by these because they don't have quite the same layer of, you know, control over them. Um, and so um, people who are kind of right at the edge, that little amount of that little amount of aggressive thoughts or aggressive feelings might have some real effect. Um, so but it's a pretty contentious area and it's an area, you know, that's difficult to do research in because you can't actually do an experiment. Right. You always have to do these studies um, where either you do very short-term things, you know, you have people play something very violent for 20 minutes and you see if their heart rate goes up afterwards, or you test the people who have played forever, um, but you don't know what caused what. So, and, and again, this, this just um, may not be something that you have an answer for me, but um, is, is there a difference between um, is, is there a studied difference between, say, watching um, a, a movie, a violent movie, and two hours of playing a violent game, or it, it, the difference between like passive, passively taking something in and actively participating? Has there been anything like that done? So there's there's been that in the short term. Um, you you know, it's like you have someone play actually play a game for 20 minutes, watch someone play a game for 20 minutes, um, or, you know, do some other neutral control. Um, the actual playing will lead to bigger changes in the short term. Um, you know, usually what you'll see in these studies is, you know, um, you play a violent game for 20 minutes and kind of we assess your aggressive thoughts or your aggressive feelings um, right afterwards, the second you stop playing the game, and they're up. Um, and this isn't surprising. These games activate the fight or flight, the mm. fight or flight system. Um, you know, you get this hormone cascade, and one thing that it leads to is kind of changes in aggression. Um, it doesn't really matter why that system gets activated. When that system is activated, it leads to changes in aggression. Yeah. Um, if you minute, watch a scary yeah. movie, you might have trouble sleeping because of the, the hormones that were released. It doesn't mean that you actually think there's ghosts now or whatever yeah and once they wash out it kind of goes away you know it right. takes you know in the case of 20 minutes of gameplay it takes six minutes for it to wash out so the 20 minutes of playing will lead to bigger effects there than 20 minutes of watching mm. um but you know i think there's you know there's a whole history of studying um violent television that came before studying violent video games um it's not clear to me that there's as big a difference as we might have expected um, between, you know, the actual experience of, you know, being the one to um, do the acts as opposed to watching them. Um, but that might just be because, um, to some extent, they're equally reinforced, you know, whether it's the, the hero that is reinforced for a violent act or the, you know, the player. Um, but, you know, I think the, the effects are pretty small. I, I made the mistake uh, I'm always bad with media members um, of saying things off the cuff and realizing that you can't get sarcasm across in print. <laughs> um, so, you know, the very first time I got asked that question, I said something along the lines of, well, I mean, I play violent games all the time. And you know what? I could just kill you for asking me that. <laughs> um, and, you know, and the, the, the review, you know, the, she tenses <laughs> they up. Took it yeah, I'm like, I'm like, you can't write that down. It's not being serious. And there's no way, it's like, we have no sarcasm font. <laughs> Um, so or punctuation, um, but, professor that plays violent video games yeah, scared the crap out of me. Yeah, exactly. That, that would be the headline. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, 
So, because I I have thought of the same thing with, and you know, it is, it's an unfair uh, comparison and probably impossible to study and everything else. But I I have thought about that with the same thing with driving. You know, if you're a kid and you're playing all these racing games all the time, is that going to make you more prone to, even, even if it is making you a better driver when you're like obeying the laws and everything, is that going to lead you to take um, more chances or is it just that teenage boys like to race cars no matter no matter wh- whether they played video games or not? And there's probably some of both in there. And yeah, it's just yeah. really difficult to, to figure out. I mean, especially because of, you know, um, one thing that's good is that, you know, um, these really kind of, terrible events are rare um, but because they're rare they're really difficult to predict right you know it's like school shootings are you know um, not as rare as they should be but they're rare um, and so it's really difficult to build a predictive model of you know of that um, the same with some of these other behaviors they're just not that common um, and so it's difficult to to predict um, from you know a huge battery of things that you do in your life your base personality so on and so forth all right so we, we we're almost to the end of the hour and we haven't even really got into learning a lot um i, I took a uh, i took a class on coursera uh recently which i saw that you did um you you did a few videos for of was it video games and learning or something yep, like I did. that um coursera. so the university of wisconsin put on a um a massive open online course on um yeah on video games and learning so i gave uh I gave the lecture on kind of perceptual and cognitive effects of video games. Um, so I'll have to check that out. But I, I just took one recently. on. It's called Learning How to Learn. And, and it's surprising to me that um, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but it is surprising to me that we never really were taught how to learn when I was in school. I didn't, I didn't go to college. Maybe that's something that they teach a lot more in college. But um, but. but but just some seemingly basic things after you learn them. Like I remember in school there was like how to take better tests and it was like all these tricks that like uh, if something ever says all or none, it's probably not the right answer and and like all these, it's just ways of manipulating tests and like playing the game. Becoming a good test taker rather than knowing (laughs) things indeed. You know, that is, no, I mean, we still don't. So um, I teach intro psychology actually in the first lecture I give is on the psychology of learning for that purpose because kids don't learn how to learn um, and they'll do things that you know huge amounts of data says are worthless so highlighting text um, not has no value um, rereading text has no value um, and these are the things I that saw that I was so surprised to see that after all the like all my years of teachers making like handing out highlighters and making sure that you are going through important parts and stuff and why and why doesn't that help so i mean the way that our brain is meant to learn is to you know it's meant to learn from mistakes um is basically how our brain learns um we make a prediction and we observe a response and the difference between what we thought was going to happen and what happened kind of drives learning um you know we try to get close you know we try to make our next prediction better um if you think about what you're doing when you're highlighting you're not making any predictions Mm -hmm. um you know you're you are just passively receiving information um our brain is not really meant to learn very well from passive reception of information so rereading highlighting not very valuable the types of things that are valuable are kind of taking quizzes um you know where you actually have to generate a response um you know, actually, in my class, I do pre-lecture quizzes. So they do quizzes on material that they have not covered yet um, because that kind of forces the system to kind of generate some response to something that they haven't seen yet oh. and then observe an outcome. There's actually really good data on pre-lecture quizzes. Um, you know, um, other things that are really good are kind of um, kind of generating your own questions. Um, so if you have to generate your own question and then have someone else attempt, you know, it's like, can you generate a question that you're, you know, friend will miss um you know that's actually requiring you to learn at a very different level than just this passive reception of information and so um those things are are valuable um you know there's other things that 
Also, I mean, doesn't highlighting also like kind of signal to your brain like, and I got it. No, no reason. Well, that's the, you know, it's like yeah, people. You know, it's like because you didn't make any predictions. It's like to some extent, you know, what your brain thinks is indeed I made no errors in this. Um, I got everything correct. Therefore, I don't have to learn anything. Um, you know, that is the lesson that you are teaching your brain by highlighting or rereading. Is and you rarely knows. review those highlights anyway. No, where you highlight everything. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, I see a lot of basically colored in textbooks. Um, I actually don't have a textbook in my class um, because of the fact that I think it's typically misused by students. I don't think it has a lot of value in the way students use them. Um, so they read kind of science journalism instead, things that I think that they'll actually kind of extract some interest out of. Um, you know, other things that they'll teach you in high school are things like um, always sit in the same seat. Um, you know, it's like, well, if you always sit in the same seat, um, you know, during class and then take the test, um, you will actually do better. So, you know, let's say you've, you know, sat for, you know, in math class for three months in one seat and you take the test in that seat, you'll do better than if you have to take the test somewhere else. Um, the problem is, is as soon as you do have to move somewhere else, um, Part of what you've learned is bound up in that location. It's part of that task-specific learning that we talked about, is that um, part of the representation that your brain learned um, about the material is the location it was in. Um, so when you go to a different location, you actually take out some of that learning. Um, so again, my class, I make them sit somewhere new every day. Um, they don't particularly love that, but um, it basically, you know, kind of encourages them um, to learn the material in a way that they'll still remember it when they leave the classroom, um, right. which is important, obviously. Um, I, I, was, I was an awful student. I just, I did fine at tests, but I'd never do homework or anything else. And, uh, and, and now I do this and go around and talk with scientists and have to read a lot and all of that. But I, I do find that I do have a, a little bit of an advantage um, over some people because I have to, uh, like say I want to um, turn something that I learned into a stand-up uh, joke, I have to like summarize to myself what I've learned and then I have to reframe it in my own words and think about it in my own way. And then it's like I have it after that. But otherwise to just read something and then never think about it again for like a year or something like that, it just seems like it's just gone. Yep, no, that's a, a pretty great example of, um, you know, requiring you to actually learn the information in such a way that, um, that you know, you basically can generate it yourself. Um, that's one thing that, um, you know, is really a very different type of, you know, it's like, can you actually generate the answer? Um, we don't even always do a good job of assessing that because um, we give people multiple choice questions. Um, and often you can recognize the correct answer, but you can't generate it yourself. Um, and, you know, there's very kind of deep philosophical issues about whether or not that means that you know it or not. If you can recognize it on a multiple choice, but you can't actually generate it, do you know it? Um, you know, it certainly won't be useful for you in your real life. Um, you know, and it's not a lot of multiple choice, choice in real so. life. Exactly. Um, and so, um, you know, in the classes where I can get away with it, you know, I don't have multiple choice at all. They write down answers or they speak answers. You know, that's, that's where you know that they've actually learned something. Um, all right. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, before we wrap up, um, uh, would you? Uh, what is the uh, charity of the week? Ah, so it's a Reap Food Group. It's a nonprofit in Madison that um, kind of works on connecting um, kind of the local food scene, so farmers with businesses, um, with healthcare organizations, with schools. So they have a program called Farm to School, where they you know connect farmers to. Um, provide healthy snacks for kids who, you know, I actually went and picked spinach um, one day, um, you know, for kids who, you know, they each got two spinach leaves, which, you know, um, kind of really makes you consider um, kids who live in food deserts who have no access to any fresh produce whatsoever. So the, the two spinach leaves are actually a, a big deal. You know, they don't have any access to that. So, you know, Reap does a lot of work in the community trying to encourage local food buying and, you know, um, fresh food initiatives. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Sean Green, for being my guest. And um, I, uh, I, there will be links on the herewearepodcast.com website where you can check out more of his work. And, uh, and I'll, I'll make sure and put up a few, of, uh, a, few, a few of the tests that we talked about today. And also um, make sure and check out the charity links as well. Um, thank you, Sean, and thank you guys for listening. Thank you.
Hey guys, super cool episode today. I think this is going to be a popular one. Also, I wanted to uh, let you guys know some exciting changes happening. My my web designer slash producer slash audio engineer slash good friend Ramin Nazer, uh, who who made the Here We Are podcast website, which you can always go and check out at herewearepodcast.com. Uh, he just he just did a major overhaul, and there's a whole new layout and it's looking real sharp i thought i liked the old um the old web layout and i did and it got us here but this is a major upgrade i'm super excited about it i do recognize that this is the sort of thing that i probably get way more excited about than the average listener but i would still appreciate it if you went and take the uh, took a look at um at Ramin's hard work, we got a real professional thing going on now. And also, um, remember, if you want to support the podcast, uh, help support the people that put it together as well. You can go to RaminNazer.com, check out his comic books or stand-up or his animations and uh, the million other interesting, funny, creative things that he does. So thank you, Ramin, and thank you guys for listening, and uh, enjoy today's episode. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blow jump why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck 